Coming up on today's show, Alberta doctors renewing some calls for action, trying to get more help to Alberta youth after a survey suggests a lot of them really suffered some pretty bad mental health effects over the course of the pandemic. We'll talk about that. Seasonal allergies, yeah, you know what it's like. We'll speak with the former Deputy Chief of Staff to Aaron O'Toole and Polycrisis. We all know that uh, none of us, absolutely none of us, uh, got through the pandemic unscathed. Whether it's, you know, your your own mental health, your own physical health, your business, your job, whatever. I mean, um, it, it caused problems for everybody, or at least caused change for everybody. It, it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't an easy time. Now we're getting some information. We've talked about this before, too. Uh, in terms of what's gone on with kids. And uh, we know that kids have been really adversely affected, and now we're finding out a lot of them are reporting that. So we're going to chat now with uh, Dr. Vesta Michelle Warren, who is the president of the Alberta Medical Association. Uh, Dr. Warren, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. Well, thanks very much for having me. Yeah, going over the the results of this survey that we're going to be talking about here, I I was kind of surprised. I mean, parents that were surveyed, two-thirds of them roughly, reported that at least one of their kids had experienced negative mental health effects over the course of the pandemic. Were you surprised by that number? Uh, Not really. It It was something that we had been seeing in clinical practice in that lots of parents were calling in with concerns about their children's mental health. I think the startling uh, thing for me was just how pervasive it was, particularly as the children got older and so the teenage age group, it's really quite significant. Um, and taking a look at what they're reporting, what, 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 how, first of all, how old are the kids that we're talking about? It's basically anybody under 18 was included in this. That's correct. Yeah, anybody over 18 was included, and they tried to break it down into the different age groups to get a better uh, understanding of how they were impacted. Uh, what they found is at all ages, we were seeing kids struggling, uh, including the, you know, the elementary age and preschool kids. And so all age groups affected um, to, to, to the same degree, or does it appear like some age groups were harder hit than others? Definitely the older age groups seemed to be harder hit, um, and that would sort of be the teenage 13 and up. Mm-hmm. where we really started seeing not only an increase in uh, mood disorders, body image disorders, but also uh, the acuity of the, of the disease, more suicide attempts, more presentations to the emergency room, um, that sort of thing. So uh, in terms of what they're reporting, as you say, uh, is, it, is it something new? I mean, anxiety among kids, as you say, um, things like, or is there something new or is it just an exasperation of problems that have always been there? So mental health has always been present in all ages. It's something that our society doesn't talk about, particularly in, in the um, younger age groups. We like to, I believe, think that our kids are happy and healthy, and there's, but we all know that's not true. Mm-hmm. And pediatric uh, mental health has never been particularly well supported. Uh, it's a hard area, I think, to work in. We don't have a large number of specialists in this area that are dedicated to children and to teenagers. And then with the COVID pandemic and the stresses that these kids went through, uh, it just exacerbated an already 
difficult right. situation because of the sheer volume we're dealing with now. In terms of pinpointing a cause, and I know, again, when we're talking about mental health, there could be a million different causes, but in terms of what happened with the pandemic, are we thinking um, isolation or anxiety, worry about their own health or the health of their parents or grandparents? Do we have any idea what was sort of the driving force in this? I don't think we've been able to narrow it down. It's Depending on the child you're talking to, we're seeing many, many different reasons. Uh, We are seeing anxiety about becoming sick and being exposed to the virus or bringing the virus home to their their family or to their grandparents. So we have those kids that uh, did not want to return to school, did not want to give up masking. We have those kids that really struggle with the isolation and the being at home and being away from their peers. We know as a general rule, when you can no longer partake in those activities that help you reduce your stress, whether it's sports, whether it's socialized events, that makes it more difficult to really begin to cope. And the one thing that I think pediatricians uh, and family physicians everywhere have noticed is just the increased use of computers, iPhones, iPads throughout the pandemic. And so that exposure real time to events, not, not so much happening in Alberta, but everywhere, war in Ukraine. Uh, political events in other countries, and and kids own this, particularly the older kids, and they worry because we really are a global society, and they are worrying about the world that is yet to come. So they they are they're going up too fast. Yeah, sure, I, I agree with you there. Um, in terms of uh, getting help for the kids, that was another thing that stood out in this study to me is a lot of parents reporting that they're really having a hard time accessing the mental health supports that they would like to and, and have available for the kids. Is that something that surprised you? I mean, are we doing a good enough job in making sure we're there to support the mental health of youth? Uh, the problem is the sheer volume of the needs that we have. There's long wait lists to access help in the public health in the public system, but there's even long waits in the, with the private psychologists and to be able to to get these kids the help they need. The first sort of step in getting help uh, for a child is to admit to mom or dad that there's an issue, or for mom and dad to recognize something's going on and, and make that connection with a primary care provider, usually a family physician. And as we know. Uh, it, a lot of people have lost their family physicians through this pandemic for whatever reason. Uh, so it's hard for these kids to get in and begin that initial tap to be then referred in. Now that um, the kids are back in schools, where we have the, the wellness workers in schools working to, again, try and meet some of that need. But again, they refer the kids on to the family physician. We do see that we've always been short of child psychi- psychiatrists, specialists for those uh, really acute sick kids and those numbers are even dropping further so the the lack of resources we had pre-pandemic has just been worsened now Mm -hmm. the alberta government yeah it's just it's tough to get them the help they need not only to begin that access point but then to get them into counseling because once they've been diagnosed they still need the therapy and that isn't something that is a one-time visit that happens over many many months if you are a parent and you have a young person in your house or in your life that you know has been adversely affected. What is, is it pediatrician? Is that where you start? What's the best way to sort of try and get the help that you think they need? Uh, with your family physician is the first place uh, and easiest place to start. Uh, to get in to see a pediatrician, you need a referral from a family physician. Uh, if, so if you already have been connected with a pediatrician for other reasons, then absolutely the pediatrician can also be a good source of of support and and beginning that process. We have many family physicians who have been taking additional training in pediatric and teen mental health. 
uh, is a way of trying to create a better network with the child psychiatrist in the province to reach out uh, and be available to those kids and teens uh, who need the assistance and support. So we're working on improving access, but it's very much uh, a work in progress and it's really driven by the need right now. Uh, Doctor, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you joining us. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah, thank you. That is Dr. Vesta Michelle Warren, who is the president of the Alberta Medical Association, uh, talking about this survey, finding that a lot of Alberta kids reporting a lot of issues when it comes to their mental health. Allergens in the air. Marfus sends a text saying, uh, good morning. There's a huge increase of this yellow dust in the air just north of Peace River, too. Our vehicles are covered with it because they're outside, of course. Um, I opened some windows in the house the other day for a cool breeze. My wife had to dust the whole house, and I'm still hearing about it. That's from Marfus. Um, it is absolutely crazy. This listener says, I spent the weekend in Edmonton this weekend from the Calgary area. My eyes started to bother me almost immediately upon arriving, and I was a snotty mess. Um, yeah, okay, so maybe it's not as bad down south as it is up north. Uh, this listener says, the trees are throwing out extra pollen because it's been so dry. They're trying to reproduce in a mad rush because they're going to die without water. Evergreens especially need water. Now, that's sort of at the heart of our next discussion here because, yes, this year is much different. And why is it much different? We're going to get into that conversation, but just that yellow dust, like I'm telling you, it's it's unbelievable. So joining us to try and see if we can make sense of this, we have um, Dr. Ann Ellis, who's a professor of medicine and chair of the Division of Allergy and Immunology at Queen's University. Dr. Ellis, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate your time. Oh, you're very welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, this, this uh, the, the pollen in Alberta right now, and I don't know what it's like where you are uh, out of Queens, but it, this could be the worst spring I can remember. And I'm not, a, I'm not a person who gets allergies. I'm just basing this on the amount of junk that I see flying around in the air, Dr. Ellis. It's everywhere. Yeah, we observed it at our house this weekend as well. It was almost like a haze in the backyard. So yeah. Lots of pine pollen out there. The good news about pine pollen is, is even though it covers your car and makes a big mess, um, because it's so heavy and falls to the ground, it's not the one actually causing your allergy symptoms. It's all the other lighter pollens like birch, maple, and oak. That okay. Are still out there so let's let's suffer, allergy sufferers their issues. Yeah. Let's break down some of the junk that's flying through the air. The gold dust, that fine gold dust that's all over everything. That's pine trees, right? Correct. Gotcha. The little they look almost like flower petals. They're round and they're go- a pale yellow as well. Do we know what those are like? And, what, and they're everywhere, like literally like snow. Yeah, I mean, uh, basically any of the pollens that you can see are mostly from the various different um, evergreen trees. Okay. Um, but again, it's like I say, they're they're big pollens. They they make a huge mess, but at least they don't cause your allergies to act up the way that smaller pollens like birch and oak will. Gotcha. Okay. Now, when we take a look at what's going on, why is it? Is there a reason um, to, that we can say this is why it's so bad? Because you heard the text earlier, a listener saying, "Well, it's because it's so dry. They're in overdrive. It was so hot last winter or last summer that they're trying to make up for lost time." Can we pinpoint a cause to why it seems to be so bad this year? Well, we had a late start to the spring, of course, which means the longer the winter lasts, the the shorter time you have in spring uh, to get all of that sort of biology stuff happening. So there could be some truth to that, that the the trees are rushing to, quote-unquote, catch up. Gotcha. Okay, so how long do we expect the allergy season is going to last? How long does it usually last? 
So tree pollen season should be rounding up soon. Again, it started a bit later than usual this year. But don't worry, grass is right behind it. So unfortunately, <laughs> grass pollen starts you know, just around this time of year as well. Um, you'll get a little bit of a hiatus in the middle of the summer. And then out here in Ontario, we hit badly with ragweed come uh, late August, early September. There doesn't seem to be as much ragweed out west. So really for you guys, it's all springtime stuff that you're dealing with. Yeah, and it seems to all be arriving with a vengeance this year. What do we do? If you're someone who's just suffering through the misery of allergies this season, what's what's the best course of action? Are there medications that work? Absolutely. So don't be afraid to, uh, obviously, if we can go to your pharmacy, you're going to look for those non-sedating antihistamines. So the ones that say non-drowsy, um, they have less side effects than the older antihistamines and they actually work better. Um, but if the stuff that you buy over the counter isn't doing the trick, don't be afraid to ask your physician. We have lots of good prescription options that we can uh, avail to you, uh, both nasal steroid sprays, uh, prescription antihistamines. And also don't be afraid to ask to get referred to see an allergist. Um, because we can find out exactly what it is you're allergic to and get you on a custom immunotherapy that'll actually change your immune system so you don't have to suffer so uh, badly the very next year. Sort of off topic here, but just just strictly for my own personal reasons. I have a son who's wildly allergic. I used to have labs, uh, uh, Labrador retrievers, loved them. He couldn't he couldn't stand to be around the dogs. He would break out. But my neighbor had the same condition growing up, but he's now seeing an allergist and getting a shot uh, I think it started almost daily, and then it went to once or twice a week and once or twice a month, and then it's supposed to be once a year or something like that. And he's now around labs. So, I mean, not to say you can be cured, but if you're someone who deals with allergies, can you get it to the point where basically they're not a factor in your life anymore? Absolutely. So that's the whole point of immunotherapy or so-called allergy shots is to retrain your immune system so that you ignore the things that you're sensitized to or allergic to rather than continuing to have symptoms whenever you're exposed to that allergen. Um, we, they are very, very effective, particularly for seasonal um, allergies, but also can work for things like cats and dogs as well. Wow, okay. Is this relatively new? Has this been going on for very long? <laughs> well, al- injectable immunotherapy has been around for over 100 years, actually. Really? Um, it's just allergists, I think, are not... Uh, there's not a lot of us in the country, and so um, we, this is not widely publicized, unfortunately. And a lot of uh, patients say, wow, I wish I knew about this sooner. This would have changed my life 10 years ago if I'd done this back then. But no yeah, don't be afraid to ask to see an allergist and get relief. What about, like you say, you know, it, it, over time this can be handled. What about just, and maybe I'm completely out to lunch, but the old running that play till you get it right, exposing yourself, does your body ever have a chance to adapt? Or if you're allergic, you're allergic and you will be for the rest of your life. For the most part, allergies do tend to be lifelong, although we do see some people who change um, over time. So there's, there's really no always and no never, um, particularly when it comes to the immune system. Um, but generally speaking, once people develop an allergy, you tend to have it um, for the rest rest of the time that you're with us on the planet. A listener just sent a text saying, ask the doctor if allergies can trigger migraines. I have both and there seems to be a connection with me. Is that true? Uh, yeah, can do. Um, particularly, it can be hard to sort sort out the difference between sinus headaches and migraines. There's often a lot yes, of overlap yeah. between the two, uh, but certainly poorly controlled allergy symptoms can lead to sinus headaches, which can then trigger a migraine thereafter. So, or right. on top of your symptoms. Great, um, great advice. I, I didn't know. There's some hope there, though. Absolutely, Doctor Ellis. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. And by the way, I have a BlackBerry, so I heard your phone discussion earlier. Whoa. How old is the BlackBerry? <laughs> 
Uh, it's a key two. So I think I've had it for four years now, but uh, obviously this will be my very last one. Um, so I'm holding on to it for as long as I can as well. Good for you. <laughs> Blackberry. Yeah, those are few and far between. Was it the keyboard? Is that what it was? You needed the keyboard? Yeah. Yeah. I want my pretty keyboard. That's right. <laughs> Here you go. All right, Dr. Ellis, thank you so much. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Take care. Talk to you later. call it a trend at this point, right? We know what's happening provincially. Jason Kenney um, losing his uh, leadership review, 51.4% backing his uh, leadership. He says that's not enough for him to carry on. So he's out, kind of, sort of. He's he's announced his intention to resign. He'll stay on until they've picked a new leader, but he's on the way out, at least. Um Federal conservatives decided they needed to have a leadership review not long ago, or Aaron O'Toole had to leave. They need a new leader. That's expected to happen in September. And then we get news this morning that after the big party for the Queen wrapped up uh, last night, conservative MPs, as soon as they got back to work this morning, said, uh, we're going to have a confidence vote in our leader, Boris Johnson. So he's facing that later today. Uh, Let's see, right now it's, what, about 5.30 in London uh, the vote is supposed to be, well, it's probably happening as we speak, I would guess, but we're not expecting to get results until 9 o'clock London time, 2 o'clock our time. So, interesting. That's a trend, though, isn't it? I think it's a trend if you're talking about uh, provincially, federally, and uh, over in the UK as well, conservatives having these existential discussions about what they are and where they're going and who should be leading them. So, here in our country, of course, the deadline has passed. That happened last week. Uh, the memberships have been sold. Now the home stretch begins for federal conservatives. They try and decide a new leader by September. And, you know, we've had a lot of discussions about what's going on with conservatives because it really is, it seems like, um, uh, a point of inflection where which way are we going to go? What are we going to be? Are there going to be different factions? Are we going to break off? Are we going to come to a whole bunch of discussions? So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. We're going to chat with Jake Enright, who is Vice President of Public Affairs and Communications for Syntax Strategic. He is also the former Deputy Chief of Staff to Aaron O'Toole and served as a senior advisor for previous conservative leaders. So he has a front row seat to a lot of what we're talking about. Um, Jack, thanks so much for your time. Is it Jack or Jake? It's Jake, right? Jake, you got it. Apologies. Yeah, okay. Uh, okay. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, thanks for having me. This, this, this topic, it, it really is fascinating, and, and I'm looking forward to hearing from you with your perspective on this, the leadership race primarily in our country, intimately involved in the leadership of Aaron O'Toole, of course, which, as we know, ended rather messily. Um, the current campaign mm-hmm. has had its messy moments. As someone mm-hmm. with this kind of inner understanding, front row seat, close involvement with the conservative movement in our country, where, what's your assessment of where this party is right now and what they're facing this summer? I think the party is not as divided as some would have us to believe. As I wrote in the National Post last week, no one in the Conservative Party really disagrees about what the core beliefs of the party are. What the disagreement is about is how to build a national coalition around those core beliefs. And yes, those are very, very divisive conversations and very, very contentious ones. But it doesn't, the current division, the current conversation doesn't strike to the core of the party and its belief system which I think is positive, and I think it's positive in terms of the ability for the party to move forward in a united uh, fashion to uh, present itself as a governing alternative to the Liberal Party of Canada. Um, 
you mentioned the piece that you wrote for Post Media. In that piece, you sort of break it down in a few different points, which is really interesting. The first point I find fascinating, because whenever I have guests like yourself that come on, uh, I, the, the question I ask is, how does this develop? Where does it come from? The chicken or the egg discussion, really, in terms of, is it politicians who, who stoke the fires of what I see as very divisive and populist politics, and then the voters latch on to what they're saying? Or is it the opposite, that we see society um, pushing us in that direction and leaders recognize an opportunity? What's your thought on where conservatives fall in that discussion? It's certainly society right now, and the reason for that is social media. Um, you know, I, I first started in a senior position as Ronna, you know, Ronna Ambrose's press secretary when she was interim leader. I remember sitting on the side of a highway uh, the morning after Donald Trump was elected president, looking at her saying, you know, what the heck are we going to say about this? And since that time, you've seen uh, social media really take off in terms of the influence uh, it has on particularly conservative politicians. Yeah. We were looking to our liberal colleagues in terms of understanding, utilizing, and monitoring social media. So perhaps, and this is an optimistic opinion, perhaps we're not too, uh, perhaps we're kind of in the same place that the liberals may have been in several years ago in terms of learning how to uh, work with social media and not let it uh, inflame one's sense of uh, where the public's mood is at. Um, we can also fall into this trap, politicians fall into this trap at the constituency level, right? Suddenly, 10 calls into a constituency office is portrayed as 100 calls uh, in a meeting in Ottawa. It happens quite frequently, and it's not dissimilar to what we're seeing uh, with social media in terms of the role it plays in influencing politicians and the crises or lack of crises that they perceive taking place in society. Yeah, you're right, and it's it's pervasive. It's everywhere. It's really, really tough to get away from. Um, the other question that you asked is sort of the leader, right? You know, do we um, have a leader who will focus on electability? It compromises what it comes down to in a lot of ways, I think, Jake. You know, are mm-hmm. you going to hold hard and fast to some of the, um, I don't know, I guess we could call it positions that mm-hmm. make it harder to get elected as a conservative? Or are you willing to set those aside in the interest of compromise and being more palatable to a wider swath of Canadians, right? Yeah, and I think what uh, what I believe after some reflection since I've left federal politics is that uh, the compromises or, you know, the betrayal of core principles as they're being perceived has never really been a betrayal of the core beliefs as stipulated by the Conservative Party of Canada. Those have still been adhered to, and the compromises actually come uh, in terms of how we... Uh, portray and, and view society very much like in the south uh, you know conservative politicians even politicians other parties they're divided uh, into two categories they're divided between the people who want their ideology to reflect society and reality writ large and the people who want society and reality to reflect their ideology and so i think that's where the major fault point is in terms of deciding what do we compromise on and what do we not? And certainly the carbon tax would fit firmly into that uh, hypothesis. It's like you say, though, in some cases, um, the willingness to compromise is a fatal flaw in, in the eyes of some conservative voters. You cannot be willing to compromise on some of these real hot-button issues. Um, and as a leader, somebody who wants to be leader, that's a major, major challenge. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and I think the first step to overcoming it is understanding why there's a lack of willingness to compromise. Certainly, as I wrote in the piece, the Conservative Party is becoming a party dominated by single-issue voters. And let's take and continue with the example of the carbon tax. The first means of getting uh, compromise on the carbon tax is really fundamentally understanding how much that tax has hurt people and how much it has driven up the the cost of everyday things like groceries and gasoline. And yeah, that might be a small portion of the overall uh, cost that we see driving being driven up uh, writ large. But for people who are living paycheck to paycheck, that minimal uh, increase is meaningful. And it's especially meaningful when they know full well that a politician could easily, with a stroke of a pen, give them a small but slight, but albeit meaningful break. And the third point that you talk about in the piece, and uh, it's such a great point, is federalism. How, how much involvement does the Conservative Party want to have in provincial issues? Do you want to be hands-off? Do you want to be involved? And that seems to be another struggle that it, it, it's a moving target at best, right? Yeah, and it's really tough in, in terms of the, how that issue is is plaguing the conservative movement. And, you know, elected leaders and, and uh, leaders trying to win uh, and, and uh, politicians trying to win leadership races in the United States have been doing this for a long time, focusing on local issues and talking about the role that the federal or state government is going to play in fixing that local issue in order to capture an audience. It, it's a tried, tested, and true method for winning, especially leadership races. The challenge that conservatives have run into in the last few years is that the issue with how government was being run at the local and regional level had to do with COVID-19, which was an extremely contentious issue, as you know full well. And the problem was for conservatives was that by condemning or criticizing those policies, often they were being pitted against their provincial uh, brothers. So Mm -hmm. it would have required criticizing Jason Kenney. It would have required criticizing Doug Ford. And that was a a Rubicon that just uh, Aaron O'Toole, at least in my experience with him, was not willing to cross uh, for any perceived gain. Uh, Ultimately, whether right or wrong, at the end of the day, when conservatives are fighting one another, uh, we're losing. And that was something that was just not going to happen. And it was one of the most divisive and contentious issues within the Conservative Caucus. And I would imagine, in terms of what uh, what uh, regulations are still in place, to this day would be a contentious issue uh, for Candace Bergen, who would get some pressure to ramp up her criticism of those policies at the local and regional level. So here we are, uh, the summer of deciding who the next leader of the Conservative Party will be, um, trying to determine what the party will be. What are you watching for and what do you anticipate as we go through this leadership campaign? What I'm watching for is how quickly, uh, and it's, it's a post-leadership issue, how quickly uh, Mr. Polyev uh, can pivot and uh, return to uh, a message that appeals more to that accessible voter base. The biggest challenge and that he will have, and, and the reason I say Mr. Polyev is because I think he's going to win, and he's uh, probably handily going to win, uh, the challenge he has, and it was one that was present when I worked in the opposition leader's office, is that through COVID-19 policies, um, the accessible voter of the Conservative Party was antagonized against the voter base of the Conservative Party of Canada. So what do I mean by that? Well, things like lockdown and restrictions were supported by the people the Conservative Party needed to reach out to to form government, but opposed by the base that makes up 
the machine of the party in terms of its fundraising and uh, and volunteer basis. That was incredibly problematic uh, down the stretch uh, for Mr. O'Toole and for our office. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be interesting to see how quickly Mr. Poliev changes gears to try and make sure that he doesn't... um, he doesn't alienate that accessible voter right. pool that he needs in order to win the next election. Well, I think that's the fine line that he's going to try and have to walk here, Jake, is because you're right. I mean, his his targeted attacks against, you know, other conservatives have been very sharp. I mean, they've been pretty pretty heavy attacks, uh, and you're, he's going to have to pivot and try and represent all conservatives, which will be fascinating to watch as this goes on. Yeah, look, I mean, I don't think the, the attacks and the nastiness of the... Uh, of the leadership race will play much of a role going forward. I'm happy to be debated on this. I'm sure some of the listeners might disagree, but I don't believe Canadians have a very long political memory. Um, You know, we've elected a prime minister who uh, dressed up in blackface now twice, Uh, Doug Ford, who just won in, um, in Ontario uh, was heavily criticized and was, uh, was deeply unpopular before the pandemic for some of the, harsh uh, and and seemingly um, ideological things that he tried to enact before in his first year as premier. It would have been a great case study to see uh, what the uh, the folks in Alberta thought of Jason Kenney if he were to face them in re-election. Uh, this, you know, I think that there's a lot of examples of people having really short memories, and I think Mr. Pauly will get the benefit of the doubt, uh, not only among conservatives, but the general public in terms of their forgiveness of the more nastier and harsher tone that the leadership race has taken. Yeah, and it will be fascinating to watch. Jake, thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Thank you. That is Jake Enright. Uh, Jake is the Vice President of Public Affairs and Communications for Syntax Strategic, also former Deputy Chief of Staff to Aaron O'Toole and Senior Advisor for previous Conservative leaders. And I think he's right. It's, it'll be interesting to see. I, I don't know. It's the same old discussion we've been having for a very, very long time, right? Um, he makes a good point about Doug Ford, though. Uh, Doug Ford... Um, at, at, <laughs> there were times uh, in Doug Ford's first term as Premier of Ontario where I, I don't think a lot of people thought he had a hope in hell of winning a second term, even being allowed to take the Conservative Party into the second term. There was, I mean, it was a disaster at times. You know how it went. Um, but he did. He, he made it through, went into an election just last week and won in a big, big way, like massive, a huge, huge win for Conservatives in Ontario. So there was some good news there. Um, And then you've got the internal division happening here in Alberta and uh, at the federal level. So lots going on as always. Brand new record high. The average in Canada, well over two bucks now, $2.06 a litre is the average price for a litre of gasoline in our country. In some places, I mean, it's... We complain about it here, and we should. The average price in Alberta, it's over $1.80 in Calgary um, and Edmonton as well. And so, I mean, you know how it is. But if you go into into BC or other parts, it's it's $2.50-ish in that area. So, I mean, it's, man, oh, man, oh, man. It's anticipated, unfortunately, that we're going to see the price of gas hit $2.12 on average across the country um, this week. Three more cents at least going up in some areas. So brace yourself. And, and, and the problem is you know, now there's stories in the news today about the cost of milk. Dairy farmers say they need more money because of inflation. So you're going to see the cost of milk going up. 
Um, you name it. What hasn't gone up? We've talked about real estate. We've talked about the price of food. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. We're into a very, very high inflationary period, the highest inflation that we've seen in a very, very, very long time in this country, 30, 40 years, depending on what particular marker you're looking at. And in response, we now see the Bank of Canada trying to adjust interest rates pretty dramatically, half point hikes two months in a row to try and cool things off. But it's not like, you know, it, it, the, the Bank of Canada can solve what is a problem that may well be happening far beyond Canada's borders, as we've talked about. It's, it's a mess. So to help us get some understanding about uh, the situation we might be in, we have Jacqueline Best joining us, a professor at the University of Ottawa's School of Political Studies who's researched previous periods of inflation and the attempts to try and con- control them. Uh, Jacqueline, thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Hi, thanks so much, Shay. Yeah, Very happy ta- to be here. It's a really fascinating time to be uh, taking a look at what's going on. You call it a poly crisis, right? <laughs> where where yeah. it's not just one simple thing. Explain what a poly crisis is to us. Yeah, it's quite a mouthful. A poly crisis really is when you have a series of crises that intersect and magnify each other. So basically the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Gotcha. Um, and obviously, yeah, today we can think, just think of it, if it feels like... Every day there's another crisis, you're probably not entirely wrong, right? <laughs> well, that's the thing. I mean, it, just before it, we got to the interview, like, price of gas going up this week, price yeah. of milk going. I mean, you're right. It's just one thing after yeah. another. Um, what's causing all of this? Is, like you say, there's a number of crises. Which ones do you think are, okay, we can point to this, 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 and this? Right. Well, obviously, the pandemic is the one you can't avoid. That's been, and that in itself, obviously, was you know, is perhaps, right, uh, like obviously a health crisis, a poli- you know, and a massive economic crisis mm-hmm. at the same time. Um, we've got the supply crises and supply chains, which are, are, are uh, making it difficult for us to you know, buy some very basic things. Um, we've got also, you go on the political side of things, right, the war in Ukraine, which is a massive global political crisis, but it's also an economic crisis, right? It's got, it had, it's had a huge impact on the price of energy. Um, you've got Prices impact on price food. on food prices, yep. yeah, absolutely, and also massively magnifying uncertainty. You know, economies don't like having no idea what's going to come next, and in the context of a war, that's very hard to know. Um, I mean, energy prices, the energy crisis is being driven by those other, you know, particularly the the war in Ukraine, but is in itself, I think, obviously, we live it as a as a crisis. As you were saying, when you go to the pump and you say, "What? Yeah. <laughs> where where is gas going?" Um, and, and in the background, sub- you've got the climate, you know, climate change and the, you know, we're starting to see, I mean, after my mom lives in Penticton, you know, and you had all the forest fires and yep. you've got the floods and in Ontario, you know, here in Ottawa, we just had that terrifying storm. Um, and that's sort of in the background again, and obviously we're going to have to, transition is going to be a challenge and that's another, you know, potentially, you know, that's another crisis we might be living through. And inflation is in the middle of all this, right? And is yeah. is being intensified by um, being caused by more than just one one variable, right? It's a whole bunch of stuff going on at once. Um, you know, and there's so many other things we could we can continue to talk about. You got the supply chain issues and all the rest of that yeah. stuff, Jacqueline. But when we talk about how we're going to deal with it, how we're going to address it, and you yeah. take a look at okay, Bank of Canada's raising in interest rates by a full percentage in the last two months here now. Mm. Um, that's the lever that they pull. Is that going to do it? Unfortunately, I don't know. It's not going to be enough. I mean, I would say it is necessary at this point. Um, really low rates, although, you know, 
they make life easier in some ways. They they cause problems, like we've seen, you know, some like we can talk about an asset bubble, you know, the increase in house prices and stock market prices, um, which is unsustainable, can increase inequality because only some folks can benefit from those benefits from those increases. Um, so yes, you know, in that sense, normalizing rates not a bad idea, but the transition time it can be very difficult, um, and it's also like it's not going to fix. You're not going to fix the war in Ukraine, right, and the impact on energy prices. You're not going to fix that with an interest rate increase. Um, those kinds of food price increases that are that are being driven by these shortages and so on, again, you're not going to be fixing that. You're not going to be fixing supply chain problems. What you do by raising rates is you start ultimately you know, squeezing out demand, slowing demand. Um, and so you do have an impact. One of the causes driving inflation, obviously, is people saying, hey, I've not you've been spending my if you're lucky. Right. Not everyone's in the situation. But those of us who saved a bit, maybe didn't go out as much and so on during the pandemic are now saying, hey, I would like to spend my money. Um, and that's one of the things driving demand that will be slowed eventually by higher rates. If you know, borrowing a car, borrowing money to buy a car is more expensive. Um but at the same time, it's yeah, it's not going to fix some of those other more complicated, complex problems and sources of inflation. You know, obviously, all of us feel the impact when we go to the grocery store, or the gas pump, mm-hmm. as we've talked about. But beyond that, bigger picture, economics, um, and you know, the financial makeup, and uh, you know, the financial sector, all of that. Is there a risk to that as well? I mean, could this be much more substantial than just having to pay more? You mean in the sense of eventually having, well, there's two things. One, initially, there's always a risk when you start increasing uh, interest rates that it's, it's a very, it's not a subtle tool. And, uh, you know, for, for interest rates to really bite, they often slow growth enough that you end up with unemployment going up. And you can end up quite easily, central banks always try for what they call a soft landing, that they yeah. are incredibly difficult to engineer it's really more art than science, and that's even in normal times, and this is not, you know, not normal times right now. Um, and so the, the likelihood of, uh, I mean, my worry, and maybe I'm pessimistic about this, my worry is that yet yeah, we, will, we will see the bank continuing to increase rates because they're kind of been a, back into a corner. And they, you know, their job is to keep inflation low, and inflation is not low. No. And so they, were, they won't do what it takes. But at the same time, the cost is is quite likely going to be a recession. That would be my pessimistic. But again, having looked historically, my sense that that's probably what we're going to see, particularly in this case where, again, it's not clear. Like, And you could even end up I, with stagflation, which is this horrible thing they had in the 70s, where you had inflation and stagnation or like a recession at the same time, which is like the worst of both worlds. Um, again, I think that's not that there's not a huge chance of that. But when you move into a situation like this, where, you know, a lot of the causes of inflation are not sensitive to interest rate changes, that you can end up there. Um, and in terms of, you know, the financial sector, is there another financial crisis possibly looming? I mean, when you have something where the conditions change pretty quickly and you're seeing interest rates go up the way that they are, is there a risk that we could see, you know, some of the financial institutions that we look to sort of find them themselves in trouble? It is a risk. I mean, I, again, I wouldn't call it a high risk, okay. but I would say we're moving into a higher risk, you know, than before. Because, yes, what you see, well, one of the big sort of flash risk factors for, if you look at the sort of financial health of Canada, is, um, you know, how expensive houses are and how highly indebted Canadians are um, and how many Canadians are borrowing, you know, huge amounts to get into those houses. Um, 
partly on the basis of very low interest rates. So that's one of the places where interest rates do kick in, like they start biting faster when they go up. Um, and, and that's a worry. That's actually something the Bank of Canada is going to be paying attention to um, because that's going to be a worry. And, and the level of household indebtedness in Canada is also very high right now. So that's a vulnerabi- vulnerability in the financial sector. Um, you also, I mean, you probably noticed, you know, that there was a bit of a wobble in crypto um, and some problems in the sort of crypto world. And that's one of the things you see in financial systems in these moments where things are not going as well and people start, you know, paying more attention to what they're investing in. They sometimes start actually looking a little more closely at like almost anything can look like a good investment when markets are generally going up. When they start kind of slowing down or going backwards, people start selling the stuff that's not as as uh, sort of reliable or safe. They start moving into safer assets. Um, and that's a moment where you can see, you can, there's a sort of risk of crisis. And I would say in this case, banks have really quite safe. Um, and they're even safer than the 2008 crisis. But at the same time, um, you know, there are, they've been the rise of FinTech and there's like the markets have changed quite dramatically. A lot more regular folks are invested in the markets. And so there's a lot of unknowns and every financial crisis is different. Um, so it's very hard to know what it's going to look like. But I, I would say, yeah, that the risk is, is, is higher now. It's not, um, I would definitely, you know, I wouldn't bet on it happening right. yeah, exactly. anytime soon. But I would say, yeah, that's something. And that's something that the Bank of Canada is going to have to get, pay attention to. Because monetary policy and, you know, they're also partly responsible for financial stability. And so they have to always be attentive to, you know, they may end up slowing the rate increases at a certain point if they start seeing the risk of a housing crash, right? Because they really don't want to be responsible for exactly. that. Exactly. Yeah, no so, kidding. Yeah. Don't not do that again. Uh, Jacqueline, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate you joining us. You're very welcome. Thanks to Pleasure to talk to you, Jay. Yeah, you bet. Thank you. That is Jacqueline Best, who is a professor at the University of Ottawa's School of Political Studies, who has researched previous periods of inflation and the attempts to control them. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.